Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. On today's program, we'll get reaction to President Trump's executive order that puts temporary bans on some refugees. And we'll also examine what happens now with the Affordable Care Act. Up front, tomorrow is the deadline for open enrollment in the health insurance marketplace. Even though the Trump administration and the Republican majorities in Congress have vowed to repeal the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, and possibly replace it, health insurance is still available. But as always, there are many questions, and we'll try to answer them on today's program. Joining us is Pennsylvania's Insurance Commissioner, Teresa Miller. Commissioner Miller, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Also joining us, Lynn Keltz, a health care navigator and executive director of the Pennsylvania Mental Health Consumers Association. Lynn, welcome back to the program. Thank you. And also joining us is Tia Whitaker, Statewide Director of Outreach and Enrollment with the Pennsylvania Association of Community Health Centers. Ms. Whitaker, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, this is part of the program where we try to answer your questions. I say we, not me. I'll just uh, direct those questions to our, our panel. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, it's at Smart Talk WITF, 1-800-729-7532. Commissioner Miller, let me start with you. Uh, as I said right there in the introduction, that uh, probably there are some people out there who are wondering, all right, what's the future here with health insurance? Because we have heard so much in the news since the election of Donald Trump that the Affordable Care Act is going to be repealed. So... Tomorrow's the de the deadline for signing up. Does that mean maybe I shouldn't sign up? No, it means you absolutely should sign up. Uh, I know there's a lot of uncertainty out there and a lot of questions people have because you can't turn on the news right now without hearing about, you know, potentially repealing the Affordable Care Act and maybe a replacement. And, and the truth is, at this point, we don't know if that's going to happen. We don't know when that's going to happen. Um, my sense is it's going to be a lot harder than some people might think. Um, so I think it'll probably take longer than people might imagine. Uh, and in the meantime, the Affordable Care Act is still the law. So we've still been telling people, you know, get covered if, if you're not. Because at the end of the day, you don't know when a health issue might come up, and you're going to be much better off if you have that health insurance. If it is repealed during this year, that does not mean the insurance goes away, correct? Right. In many cases, it just it depends on what what they actually do. I think what we're hearing a lot about is a potential repeal with a transition period so that it wouldn't go into effect immediately. And um, th that would be my guess in terms of whatever may happen, that I think we're going to have a transition period. So if people sign up for coverage today, they should have coverage through the rest of 2017. Mm -hmm. Um you mentioned to me before the, the, the program started that uh, since the election that the Pennsylvania Insurance Department, that you're not getting updates where in previous years you have. Explain that a little bit. Right. The the last enrollment uh, data that we received was when President Obama was still in office, and we learned that there were more than 413,000 Pennsylvanians that were enrolled for, for 2017. And at that point in time, that was more than what we'd seen in previous years, so we were encouraged by that. Um, but since um, President Trump was inaugurated, we haven't gotten any further enrollment data. So we just don't know where we stand this year um, with regard to enrollment okay, compared so to last year. That's as far as numbers go. Right. Is there any other information that you had gotten previously in previous years that you're not getting now? 
There might be. Um, I, I we haven't gotten a lot of information from CMS since uh, since President Trump was inaugurated. So typically we would we would have a lot of communication with them and get a lot of information. At this point, um, they're just and I think part of that is you know we still don't have uh, a leader for HHS at this point. I don't think anyway. <laughs> um, so I think in many ways you've you've got to get folks in in place in the agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Lynn and Tia, you work with. People people who uh, are trying to get uh, enrolled. Um, You know, one of the first questions I've asked you, your previous appearances when we've done this in previous years, is the numbers that you have seen, or at least your observations. Um, From what I saw nationally, it appeared as though right after the election that there was a wave of people who were enrolling. But what about now, with tomorrow being the deadline uh, for this year? And by the way, we should mention that March 1st is when this insurance would go into into effect. What have you seen here in the last few days? I'd say in the last week or so, we've seen steady enrollment, but not the increase that we saw before December 15th. Uh, The advertising on the television and radio was much more... There was just much more of it in December than there is right now, reminding people of the opportunity. So we're seeing a lot of people who've been laid off or who, for some other reason, are losing jobs who are coming in to apply for insurance, health care insurance through the marketplace or through Medicaid. We help with Medicaid, too. Uh, But we're not seeing so many people that we can't fit them into our schedules, which was true the first three years. Now, you mentioned uh, about the the advertising. One thing the Trump administration did do uh, just last week is uh, cancel advertising, let people know that the deadline is is tomorrow, about $5 million worth of advertising. So just so I'm clear, have you seen, compared to other years, uh, in the days leading up to the deadline, more or fewer people? I think fewer. I can't say how many fewer because I right. haven't and counted I them this ask, week. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't ask you that. So, Tia, the people that you work with, what have you seen? Regionally, especially in our Philadelphia market, in our Pittsburgh market, we've seen steady to increased enrollment. Um, but through the rest of the state, it, it seems to be a slight decrease. Mm-hmm. And how do you notice that? I mean, uh, I mean, you're not counting probably either. Just This is just observation? Well, we have internal uh, reporting that we do. Um, our network of community health centers, there are 51 um, in the state of Pennsylvania. And we have over 200 certified application counselors and navigators who report into our organization and give us feedback on a regular basis as to number the number of um, consumers who they're seeing and enrolling. There are many people in this state that utilize community health centers, but for those who may not or may not be familiar, explain what community health centers do. So throughout our state, like I mentioned, um, there are plenty Um, There are numerous community health centers, and what they do is they provide um, care for consumers. Um, It doesn't matter what their income. uh, We don't turn anyone away. Um, They're federally qualified. So you can go to our website, PAC.org, which is P-A-C-H-C dot org, and get a full history of what community health centers do, um, how they were established. Um, We've been providing services to patients for over 50 years. Uh, We service more than 800,000 consumers a year. So we are here 
uh, to provide assistance, to provide enrollment, to provide um, provider services as well, mental health, dental, um, and we we've just we're just here. Do people for, pay for your services? Yes. Um, it's basically based on your ability to pay. Mm -hmm. We don't turn away anyone. So before the Affordable Care Act, mm -hmm. uh, who were typical your clients? And I guess the reason I'm asking this is, was there a difference in the number of people you saw, uh, who your clients were before the Affordable Care Act and now? Well, typically we see uh, patients who are at 200% of the federal poverty level or below. Um, and there has been a steady increase over the years. Okay. So, Commissioner, I guess what I was getting at is that uh, if the Affordable Care Act is repealed and there isn't a replacement, I can see where we could go back to a lot of people going to community yes. health centers or maybe even going to uh, emergency rooms and hospitals for, for their care. You're shaking your head, nodding uh, like you agree. Yeah, I, you know, my my concern is, uh, based on what little we've heard about the replacement plan, um, and obviously we don't know if there, if there will be a replacement, but there's certainly a lot of talk there will be, I haven't heard anything that suggests there's an actual plan that would really replace the Affordable Care Act. When we hear little tidbits about high-risk pools, protecting people with pre-existing conditions, and um, and allowing insurers to cross state lines. And when we hear things like that, I keep thinking, okay, I mean, those are ideas that you can kind of throw out there, but that's not a plan to make sure that people are protected and aren't going to lose their coverage. And that's my biggest fear is everything I hear suggests that we're going back to a pre-ACA world. And for a lot of people, that's not going to be a, a good thing. Right. In addition to the impact of the ACA repeal, community health center funding's at risk as well. Um, it needs to be addressed <laughs> by October 27. So we want to keep that in what mind as well. So funding for fe for federally qualified health centers or health centers, FQHCs, is coming up for um, replacement or uh, we need funding to be uh, discussed by Congress. And, Has and it been so far? I mean, have you heard anything? No. No, so you don't know one way or the other. We do not. Our yeah. National Association of Community Health Centers, that is their agenda to make sure that funding um, stays in the forefront along with ACA and all of the discussions about repeal and replace. But before the Affordable Care Act and even, quote, unquote, after, if, you know, that's what takes place. Health centers will be in place and need to stay in place to take care of our most vulnerable populations. Lynn, you wanted to say something? Yeah, one of my concerns being from the Pennsylvania Mental Health Consumers Association is that under the Affordable Care Act, all of the health plans have been required to offer uh, mental health care and treatment for drug and alcohol abuse. If it goes away, no one is talking about how that would be replaced. There is a parity law that says a, a insurance company has to offer physical health care and mental health care that's pretty much equal. But if they're not required, I'm afraid that fewer people will be able to get the care they need. And I attended a funeral Saturday for a young man who died of an, he had had depression for many years, you know, since high school. He became suicidal. He was trying to get clean from the drugs. He became a, a, 
addicted to opioids through surgery, then heroin, the typical story that unfortunately has become typical. He was in the process of applying for Medicaid. So he had the hope that he would have insurance to take care of his medical needs and his mental health and his substance use addiction. If you no longer have that hope, how are you going to get well? If you don't think that anybody's going to pay for the care you need, what are you going to do if you're already depressed and using drugs? One of the reasons that uh, we're doing this is today, you know, the day before uh, the deadline to sign up is that uh, to answer your questions, if you have a particular issue, uh, Linda in Hummelstown had a question, will people who are already covered by Medicare have to sign up for a separate insurance policy? Medicare is not associated with the Affordable Care Act. So there's no direct correlation. There's some talk of changing Medicare, but I don't know where that will end up going. But no, the Affordable Care Act does not affect Medicare in terms of insurance. It has some good things in it that have made Medicare uh, better, but it doesn't affect the fact that Medicare will still be there. Commissioner, Medicaid, that's a different story. Uh, governor Wolf is amongst the, the governors across the country that, uh, in fact, there are some Republican governors as well that uh, have asked the administration to not roll back the Affordable Care Act as it uh, applies to uh, Medicaid. Where are we right now? Well, right now, because of the Affordable Care Act, we have 1.1 million Pennsylvanians who have coverage either through the Medicaid expansion, which is about 700,000 individuals, or through the exchange, which is about 400,000 individuals. So these are all people that are covered under the Affordable Care Act. And our concern is, you know, as we talk about the repeal, um, what impact that could have on those individuals. And I think Lynn brought up a really good point. You know, those are individuals in many cases that, you know, wouldn't have been able to get coverage before the Affordable Care Act because they had a pre-existing condition perhaps and would have been denied coverage or they couldn't afford coverage. And today, you know, we have uh, insurance companies required to, to sell to anyone who wants to buy a plan. Um, and we have... Um, subsidies and and cost sharing assistance to help people pay for those plans. And so I think we're, you know, facing a situation where we could be taking a huge step backwards for all those individuals who are covered today who who didn't have coverage before the Affordable Care Act. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. During this portion of the program, we're talking about the possible repeal of the Affordable Care Act. But really, our main emphasis during this portion of the program is that tomorrow is the deadline to sign up for health insurance in the marketplace. And uh, we know you always have questions about that. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Our guest today, Pennsylvania Insurance Commissioner Teresa Miller. Lynn Kelts, a health care navigator and executive director of the Pennsylvania Mental Health Consumers Association, and Tia Whitaker, Statewide Director of Outreach and Enrollment with the Pennsylvania Association of Community Health Centers. Again, 1-800-729-7532. All right, uh, Commissioner Miller, as we go into, or as I guess we should say, as we end this period, what are your biggest concerns other than not knowing where we stand, if there is a replacement, but Maybe on looking at some more specific issues, the biggest concerns that uh, you have in the insurance department. 
Well, I have a, a lot of concerns. Um, <laughs> but, you know, one of the things I guess I would say for people who are out there who are, um, you know, who were urging to sign up in the next day, the one um, the one thing I would want, well, there's several things I would want them to know, but one thing is to make sure that when they're buying a plan, they're buying an ACA-compliant plan. At the department, we've heard a lot from individuals who I, I think – um, unknowingly have purchased what, what we call limited benefit plans. And they don't necessarily know that these are not ACA compliant plans, or they don't know that they're not really comprehensive coverage until they end up with a claim months down the line and then realize we had a couple that filed a complaint with our office that had good employer coverage, decided they could do better uh, off off of that coverage and went and bought a limited benefit plan, found out down the road when they had $2,000 in claims that they bought a plan that was a limited benefit plan. It was it didn't provide comprehensive coverage. So not only did they have $2,000 in medical bills they had to pay, but then they didn't have ACA-compliant coverage, so they faced a tax penalty on top of it. So we've been hearing from more and more consumers stories just like that. And so that's one of the things I would just urge people as they're going to, to sign up to just be careful and make sure that they are buying a plan that is ACA compliant contains all the benefits that are that are in those plans. Have we made it past the point where the shock of the higher premiums has worn off, or are you still hearing complaints from Pennsylvanians who are saying, you know, I can't afford this? You know, especially you hear about and many people have referred to it as a donut hole of those people who make too much to qualify for some of the tax credits but are paying hundreds of maybe maybe thousands of dollars out each month for their plans there certainly are those concerns and for people who aren't eligible for financial assistance i think um, paying these premiums is is often difficult i do think though it's important to note that most of the people who are purchasing through the exchange, we talked about the 413,000 Pennsylvanians, most of those people, almost 80% of them, are, are going to be getting subsidies to help them pay for the premium. And in a lot of cases, over half of them are going to be getting what we call cost-sharing assistance, so help paying their deductible and other out-of-pocket costs. So so yes, I'm, I'm not trying to diminish the impact of the, the premium increases, but a lot of people who are getting subsidies are not going to feel those, those premium increases. The other thing I've been suggesting Suggesting to people, and we actually put together a resource on our website for individuals. If you're not eligible for financial assistance, again, you are going to be paying the the full cost of the uh, plans. We worked with Consumers Checkbook and, and developed a plan comparison tool where you can not only see plans that are offered on the healthcare.gov or on the exchange, but also plans that are off the exchange. And not in all areas of the state, but certainly in some areas of the state for people who don't qualify for financial assistance, they may find a better plan, might be cheaper and still provide all the good benefits that they want off the exchange. So we did develop that resource and it's very easy to use. It's really a great website for people to see even more options than, the, than they would see on healthcare.gov if they don't qualify for financial assistance. How And maybe you touched on this, but how does someone know whether uh, a plan is ACA compliant? Well, any plan, if they're going to healthcare.gov, all of those plans are ACA compliant. And if they go to our website, for example, and, and look at the Consumer's Checkbook website, all of those plans are ACA compliant. There are some websites that I'm just concerned about because they look like they might be healthcare.gov. That was from day one they did that. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, if you're careful and you read all the fine print, they do have disclaimers saying this is not a government website. But I was on one the other day and I thought, boy, 
I have to look really hard to find those disclaimers. And they, they talk about ACA compliant coverage and they have a lot of really good information. And then as you start clicking to get enrolled, they start sending you to limited benefit plans and, and what we call short term plans that don't last the full year. None of those are ACA compliant. So that's my fear is people need to be really careful that they're on healthcare.gov and that they're looking at an ACA compliant plan. Can't, can't you, uh, as the insurance department, crack down on some of that that is misleading? You know, it's hard because they they do have the disclaimers on there. And so, um, you know, there are some things we can do if there are licensed producers that have websites like this. But the difficulty is if you read it very carefully, there are those disclaimers, but, um, but they certainly have a lot of good information on them that makes it sound like they're a great resource. And then again, the more you click, the more you end up getting funneled into these limited benefit plans. Let's take a call from Pat in Mount Joy. Pat, you're on the air. Yes. Hi, Scott. Hi. Uh, once again, thanks for your wonderful program. Thank you. It's my understanding that the Trump administration last week, one of the presidential directives was to stop, uh, to, to withhold $5 million from advertising for to sign up for the ACA before the cutoff point. I just wanted to find out, is that correct, and what your guest uh, thinks about that kind of a move simply to, once again, chop the knees off of this even before they figured out what they're going to do. All right. Thank you very much for your call. We did mention this. Uh, Commissioner, how have you addressed this, if if you would? But, yeah, th this was something that was actually widely publicized, that the administration decided to stop uh, advertising that the deadline is tomorrow. And that caused me a lot of heartburn. I was really disappointed to see uh, that move because I, I think a lot of people believe, and I think it's probably true, that your your healthier, younger individuals are probably the people coming in at the last minute. So those are the people you really want in this market right now, and it'll help stabilize it. Um, and so these last minute pushes, what we know from prior years is you get a lot of people coming through the door in these last final days and weeks. And so to stop the advertising, uh, and again, with all of the talk about repeal and replace, I think it just adds to that sort of we don't know what what's going to happen. Therefore, maybe I shouldn't sign up. And, um, you know, my concern is the very people in the administration and in Congress who are saying the ACA is not working, it's falling apart, we have to fix it or we have to get rid of it. They're the same people that are doing everything they can to undermine it and not allow it to work as it was intended. So, yes, we do have some problems. But um, gosh, if we were all trying to make it work, I, I think it would be working. Uh, Lynn and Tia, uh, one of the questions that I ask uh, the two of you whenever we come to these deadlines, or actually when we start, uh, we actually start during a, a sign-up period, is the questions that you were asked. Uh, they may be some of the same questions that you were asking year one, but uh, Lynn, let me start with you. What are what are some of the questions that you're getting from consumers? Those that, as a navigator, you were helping people to navigate through this. I think people are more aware than they were in the first couple of years that they need to look at networks of providers, and they're more aware that they need to make sure they get an insurance company that pays for the medications that are life-sustaining for them. So they're asking a lot more of that kind of detail than they did when they first signed up for insurance. It's been a learning curve for individuals who never had to do this before. So they're asking us, can you help us find the, if there's a provider? And healthcare.gov now has a much better tool that helps navigators go through that and find the providers that 
the insurers that have the network providers, the doctors that people want, and the medications that they want. I would say that's the biggest change that I've seen. And we have more people calling when they're in the middle of an application online and say, I'm stuck here. What do I do now? And we encourage people to call with those questions because we can help you help walk you through that those questions or that website. And we do have those phone numbers uh, on our website, WITF.org. Tia, what about you? What do you hear? We're finding the same thing. A lot of folks are just calling for technical assistance. They've decided to go to healthcare.gov on their own, and they uh, may have a question about something they see on the website. Um, we're able to walk them through. Uh, for the most part, <laughs> and also direct them um, with some of the questions that they have. So same as, as Lynn. You know, I'm curious, um, Lynn, you said uh, earlier in the program about unemployed people. If you go by the statistics, the uh, the economy is recovering, uh, and that even on Friday we had uh, our unemployment rate in Pennsylvania down to 5.4%, still above the national average, but still going down. Um, compared to other years, I mean, you are kind of a barometer, I would think, for the health of the economy. Uh, you didn't think of yourself that way, did you? <laughs> but do you, I mean, when you, so when you, uh, are you able to, how do I put this? Are you able to tell whether the economy is getting better by, based on the people coming in to sign up? I don't think I could say that, but we have not seen a decrease in the number of layoffs. We do rapid response teams with the Pennsylvania Department of Labor and Industry, and some other navigator organizations do the same. And if a company moves from, say, the Harrisburg area, and they're going somewhere else, and there's 200 people displaced, then we talk with those people. If the coal mines are shutting down, we had a lot of that over the past year, uh, then we're called to those rapid response teams because coal, as we all know, is an economic barometer, you know, closing those is difficult for people. Um, But I I think, you know, you've got department stores, Macy's, Kmart, Sears closing all over the country, and we're seeing those people come through our doors. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sorry to be jumping around on you, but there are so many issues. And, Commissioner, I know that you have to run here pretty soon, so I wanted to ask some some more questions of you. You had mentioned several of... I don't know whether we would call them replacement plans or some of the suggestions, some of the possibilities out there. Uh, one of the things that we have heard from many Republicans, even the Trump administration, is that they would like to keep the popular parts of the ACA. Uh, in particular, you mentioned pre-existing conditions. Uh, also, we haven't talked about it here today, but another one of the popular parts is keeping children on their parents' policies until the age of 26 or but, you know, before the age 27. So those are two things. But what are some of the other, you said we really haven't heard definitive, but I, I heard you mentioned high-risk pools. Mm-hmm. What is that? So, you know, we've heard a lot of promises from the administration and from members of Congress saying, you know, we're going to continue protecting people with pre-existing conditions. And um, the way we're going to do that is through high-risk pools. At least that's the only mechanism I've really heard mentioned that, that would provide that protection. And I think the the concern I have about that is they, they point to the high-risk pools that existed before the Affordable Care Act. So if we go back and look at that coverage, um, you know, these are very expensive funds to to uh, to administer because you're essentially taking all of the people with the very highest risk and the very highest health care costs and you're isolating them in one pool. 
So it takes a lot of money to, to fund that pool. And I think because of that, the high-risk pools that existed pre-ACA, they were kind of designed in many respects to limit enrollment. Some high-risk pools around the country even had caps on enrollment. So when the funding ended and there was no more funding, they just closed their doors to anyone who might have a pre-existing condition and need to, to get that coverage. Um, but they also, again, had other design features like they were expensive for consumers that needed that coverage. In a lot of cases, you would pay uh, 150 to 200 percent to have that coverage versus your average person in the individual market and what they would be paying. They also had, uh, in a lot of cases, lifetime and annual limits on the coverage. So essentially, you had coverage and, until you didn't. Um, and oddly enough, I think this surprises a lot of people, but this coverage in, I think, most cases had pre-existing condition exclusions um, for up to 12 months. So all of those types of um, design features really did serve to limit enrollment. So I don't think we ever saw the number of people who really had pre-existing conditions on that coverage. So my concern is if we're talking about high-risk pools as the way to protect people with pre-existing conditions, they didn't. They certainly didn't protect everyone with pre-existing conditions pre-ACA, and I worry unless they're fundamentally designed differently in this world, and and we have all the funding we need to make sure everyone with a pre-existing condition has access. I just worry that people are going to fall through the cracks, and they're not going to have the same good quality coverage that they have today. Do the two of you see many people with pre-existing conditions? Yes. yes. Tell me about Jim. We do. Um, the population that we serve, of course, uh, statewide, um, is very vast. Um, in Cumberland County, um, at our specific location, we see a lot of vo- folks who are ready to retire between 55 and 65, and they come in with a list of medications. Um, they come in with a list of specialists that they need to see. So they're very, very concerned about their health, and they have these pre-existing conditions, and they want to make sure that they're covered and that they have appropriate coverage. Mm-hmm. Lynn? Yes, we see uh, one woman in particular, she told me in the first couple months of this ACA, she had bipolar disorder and she could never get insurance because of having that mental health need. And that meant she couldn't get her physical health needs met either because nobody would even put her on into an insurance plan. And we see people all the time who have pre-existing conditions. I know that at this table of three people, I know at least two of us have pre-existing conditions. So if you think to what what do you have in your health care, is that a pre-existing condition that could rule you out of future insurance? You may come up with a yes. Actually, uh, when Ben Allen, our Transforming Health reporter, appeared on the program and went down to the list of pre-existing conditions, mm-hmm. I was uh, surprised at uh, you know some of the, the what is considered a pre-existing condition. What about uh, children who who have aged out are now over 26. Uh, you know, we hear those stories about uh, how difficult it is for a lot of young people who have graduated from college or maybe haven't graduated, but uh, that don't have a job where they're paying, being paid a lot of money. Are you seeing a lot of young people after they've aged out? We see people with the help of their parents who know they're aging out, mm-hmm. yes, come to us and say, we, they need to get insurance. Can you help them? And we do help them. Uh, And there are people in that age group who aren't yet making very much money, and they do qualify for tax credits. And so they find out they get a pretty decent deal through the Affordable Care Act. And and I want to make sure that I ask all of them to go ahead and enroll. Whether you're in doubt about having insurance, 
in the future or not, you need to be enrolled in the ACA before anything is going to be replaced for you. So if you've not had any insurance at all, there's a chance you won't be able to get any insurance. So get your insurance and use it. <laughs> uh, Commissioner, what about the insurance companies? Um, you know, we Something that happened uh, this past year was we had a number of companies that decided not to participate in uh, the Affordable Care Act to offer, offer uh, plans out there. What do you anticipate? I imagine that they're just as confused as everyone else. They are. And, you know, if you're an insurance company, the thing that you really need is you need a predictable market. <laughs> you, and you need to understand what the rules of the road are because, you know, companies are thinking years ahead when they're developing their products. So they've been working on their 2018 products now for months. So now that they don't know what the rules are going to be, there's there's a lot of uncertainty out there on the part of the companies. And, um, you know, last year, as you mentioned, it was it was a tough year for us. And again, you know, I always like to level set and and remind people when we talk about the the large premium increases and the instability in the market, we're really talking about the individual market, which in Pennsylvania serves about five percent of Pennsylvanians. So it's an important market, but it's a small market. And and that market has struggled in Pennsylvania, just like it has in, in a number of states. And and so I think for, for the companies, they really need to know what the future holds so they can make business decisions about whether they want to continue offering coverage in that market. Is there any way you can predict what premiums will look like next year if there is a next year? Absolutely not at this point. I mean, my fear is that this uncertainty, all it's going to do is raise premiums at this point. And I think when you talk to companies, they say, well, you know, if we're in the market in 2018, given all this uncertainty, it pro at this point, when they're developing their products and their plans and their filings, um, they're saying, you know, I think we have all this uncertainty and uncertainty means higher premiums. That's the way they, they deal with that is they say, OK, we have so much uncertainty, we've got to go high. So mm -hmm. I have no idea what they're going to look like, but I'm concerned because of all the uncertainty. Well, yeah, there is a lot of uncertainty, but one thing is certain. Tomorrow is the deadline to sign up in the, the health care or health insurance marketplace. I want to thank all three of you for being with us today. Pennsylvania's Insurance Commissioner, Teresa Miller, Lynn Kelt, a health care navigator, and Tia Whitaker, Statewide Director of Outreach and Enrollment with the Pennsylvania Association of Community Health Centers. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank, thank you. you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. There were protests around the country this weekend after President Donald Trump's executive order Friday that bars all refugees from entering the U.S. for 120 days, as well as citizens of seven largely Muslim countries for 90 days. The order resulted in some immigrants being detained at airports across the country, including Philadelphia, and around the world. It also left many confused. We'll hear from some people today over the next half hour talking about this, but we'd like to hear from you as well. Joining us on this portion of the program is Molly Tack Hooper, is a staff attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union of Pennsylvania. Ms. Tack Hooper, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. And she's a real trooper. Uh, you're on maternity leave, but yet you were working over the weekend, right? Yeah, I finally took down my out-of-office reply saying I'm on leave, and I may even be in the office today at this point, but it's been, it's been very busy. But you actually were working with some of those who were detained at Philadelphia International Airport, correct? Well, we were working with the families of people um, who were detained. Uh, we None of the people who were actually detained at the airport ever got access to attorneys, so um, we weren't able to speak with any of the 
the travelers directly, unfortunately. Well, walk me through this weekend at Philadelphia International. Uh, from the time you found out about this to the point where there were some people detained and you're working with the families. Sure. So, um, as you know, the order was announced Friday night. We were out uh, decrying it quickly. Um, and by Saturday morning, we were hearing media reports um, that travelers had been detained at the airport or sent back. Uh, so we started scrambling to put together a legal team to try to make contact with the families, to try to get information from the government about um, what was happening to people. Uh, and it hasn't stopped since. So, you know, walk me through also uh, what your legal argument is for those who are detained. Sure. So the National ACLU filed a lawsuit on behalf of everyone affected by the Muslim ban, um, asked the court to certify it as a nationwide class action, arguing that um, it is ethnic and religious discrimination, plain and simple, uh, and it violates the First Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to um, discriminate based on religion and ethnicity. So uh, that litigation was happening all throughout the weekend. We got a fabulous order out of Brooklyn um, sometime on Saturday. So here in uh, Philadelphia, we were actually gathered at the airport trying to gain access to the people detained there, huddled over our smartphones, analyzing the Brooklyn order, trying to figure out what else we needed to implement it uh, here in Pennsylvania. Um, and we ultimately were able to uh, get the government to agree to release the people who had been detained in Philadelphia to admit them to the country. Um, unfortunately, though, there were many travelers who had already been put on planes back abroad. They got to Philadelphia, were denied entry, and basically turned around and told to go home. Uh, so we are still pursuing individual actions for those people, trying to get them back to the United States. So I, I want to go through some of these legal arguments or the justice system, because I have a sense that many people uh, probably are not that familiar with it. You mentioned the federal court in Brooklyn, and there were at least three other federal courts across the country, judges that uh, uh, had had similar rulings. Uh, but just so everyone knows, this is not a Supreme court, a U.S. Supreme Court order that encompasses the entire country. How does a federal court order work? <laughs> that's, that's a fabulous question. Yeah, no, cases take many months to get to the United States Supreme Court. So right now we're dealing with essentially emergency filings in trial courts all around the country. Um, and those trial courts have the power to order the defendants, in this case, the federal government to do or not do certain things. So um, what we are doing is basically saying, hey, a, you know, a Brooklyn judge has ordered the U.S. Department of Homeland Security to stop excluding people um, under this executive order. You, this needs to be implemented everywhere um, for the same reasons that uh, the ACLU made in the, in the Brooklyn case. So there's litigation happening all across the country, um, but, you know, relying on the orders that have already come out basically saying, look, it was persuasive to these judges. These arguments are solid. You need to put in place some temporary relief for these people who are otherwise going to be irreparably harmed by being excluded from the country um, while we can wrap up this litigation and uh, give us a chance to make our fuller arguments. Now, were you surprised by this? I mean, was the ACLU surprised by, by this order? No. Um, 
Uh, we weren't surprised by Trump's executive order. It was entirely consistent with the rhetoric that he was espousing on the campaign trail. Um, he's made it very clear he wants to ban Muslims from the country for um, over a year. Um, and the victory, frankly, wasn't surprising either because we think the Muslim ban executive order is entirely unconstitutional. Uh, and, in fact, we've seen that the uh, federal government employees who have to defend it in court are really struggling to come up with any argument as to why it's legal. So uh, it wasn't particularly surprising. It was um, inspiring how quickly it was struck down um, and <laughs> and the good results that we've been getting in court. Uh, you know, maybe I used the wrong word. Uh, when I said ask uh, whether you were surprised, maybe prepared was a better word because, you know, one, <laughs> one of the things that I've noticed over the weekend that it, this seems to have taken some people by surprise, even though Donald Trump said all along on the campaign trail from day one that, you know, this was something he was looking to do. But uh, so surprise maybe wasn't the better, the best word. Maybe prepared is a better word. Well, I'm not sure you could ever be entirely prepared, but um, the ACLU has certainly been talking about um, and thinking about how we would respond to these orders when we ca when they came out, um, because, you know, Trump's message was so clear. Um, we didn't know in advance what the details were going to be. Um, so it's not like we had briefs uh, sitting in a box ready to file the second it was signed. Um, we're all responding to the developments as they happen. But um, we've certainly been strategizing for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, you yourself called it a Muslim ban a couple times during our conversation. Uh, the president has come out and said this is not a Muslim ban, that, uh, you know, what we've done is we've limited immigration from seven largely Muslim countries. There are another 30 countries out there across the world that are largely Muslim that th this doesn't have an impact on. How do you respond to that? Well, that would be more more compelling if he hadn't said that he wants to ban Muslims from the country, if his advisors who helped him draft the order hadn't said, yes, we were trying to do a Muslim ban, but to do it legally. And if he hadn't included this provision um, that bans all refugees from Syria except for Christian minorities, um, that, it's, that's very telling. Um, so we, this is why we have such a strong case that this is, in fact, a Muslim ban dressed up as, as a national security measure. Really, though, it is discrimination. Our guest during this portion of the program is Molly Tack Hooper, a staff attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union of Pennsylvania that worked on uh, the, the, the cases of those who were detained, the immigrants who were detained at Philadelphia International Airport over the weekend. If you have a question or a comment, because we are taking comments, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page on Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. I don't know. I think that uh, th this is always a good opportunity when we have a case going to the courts like this to maybe uh, provide some um, tutorials, if you will, in uh, the legal system. Now, you mentioned um, that you were looking at, at First Amendment and also, did you say uh, Fourth Amendment? Uh, 14th Amendment, 14th the Equal Amendment. Protection Clause. Okay. So First right. Amendment, I think it's pretty obvious, uh, freedom of religion, correct? That's right. Okay. 14th Equal Protection under the law. Can you explain yes, a little bit right. more? 
Sure. It, it means that you can't um, target people based on their religion or their ethnicity or their national origin uh, and treat them separately uh, without a really compelling reason to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what you mentioned the Syrian refugees. Uh, this is that is kind of like uh, that. Is, what am I saying? Kind of like it is different than uh, banning uh, or at least uh, temporarily banning people from the seven largely Muslim countries. Um, so tell me a little more more about that. I mean, is that a separate separate argument in court? Um, yes. Uh Sort of. Uh, So the Syrian refugees, um, one thing it's important to understand is that a refugee is someone who, by definition, is fleeing persecution. Um, And we know what's going on in Syria. These refugees are fleeing just unspeakable violence. Uh, Banning all of them uh, from the country is essentially blaming them for the terror that they are are fleeing. Um, Another thing that's important to understand about refugees is that they already undergo incredibly intense rigorous vetting background checks that can take years and Syrian refugees undergo an even higher level of screening than other refugees. So saying that we need to vet them more um, is, is insane. Extreme vetting of Syrians isn't really vetting at all. It's slamming the door to the country in their face. Uh, so yes, we've made separate arguments about um, what that provision is really all about. Let me ask this. Uh, as you described earlier, I mean, you're going around, when I say you, meaning the ACLU, uh, around the country to de- different uh, federal jurisdictions. Is there a chance that this case could make it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court? I mean, I know you're looking for emergency orders right now. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think, I mean, we've just seen an incredible... Um, outpouring of uh, support for our our case and our clients, um, protests all around the country, intense media interest in the issue. This is the kind of case that the U.S. Supreme Court would take if this executive order um, isn't rescinded and <laughs> mooting the case t- entirely by the time it gets up to the highest court. Mm. Molly Tuck Hooper is a staff attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union of Pennsylvania. So what's next? What's happening today? What's happening in the next few days? Today, we are still trying to um, put together filings to get some of the families who were turned around at the border and sent back abroad back into the country to secure them um, travel documents. We are also um, following up on reports from other family members um, We don't have a perfect source of information about what's happening at every airport, so we really rely on people from the community, affected family members getting in touch, and those reports are still trickling in. So um, it's still all systems go, trying to just uh, catch up with and and help out as many people affected as we can. Mm. So, Molly, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Molly Tack Cooper, she was a, she's a staff attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union of Pennsylvania. I'm sure that uh, this obviously will be one of the big news stories today. Now, let me just let you know uh, what we hoped we have in here in just a few minutes. We're waiting a call from Josh Shapiro, the newly elected uh, or newly sworn in attorney general of Pennsylvania. I hope to hear from him in just a few minutes. We did place calls out to uh, Congressman Lou Barletta. Uh, Congressman Barletta kind of made his name in public life on the immigration issue uh, when he was mayor of Hazleton. Uh, As a member of Congress, 
He was one of the first members of Congress to support the candidacy of Donald Trump. Uh, he has come out in support of uh, the executive order that the president made on Friday. Uh, we placed a call to his office, several calls, in fact, and uh, not surprisingly, almost all the the mailboxes, the voicemail boxes are filled, and uh, it was very difficult to, to get through. We didn't get any any response whatsoever. Uh, I'm sure that uh, there are a lot of uh, Congressman Barletta's constituents out there who are uh, placing calls as well. But uh, Congressman Barletta, if you go to his website, has a statement about his support for uh, the president's executive action on Friday uh, having to do with uh, immigration. And uh, he, um, he, okay, I understand that we have the attorney general here. Uh, general Shapiro, are you there? Hold on just one second. You. There you go. Okay. Hey, thank you very much for joining us. I know you were in the middle of a meeting. We only have a few minutes left. Uh, you were one of a handful of attorney generals across uh, the country that have come out in opposition to uh, this executive order. Tell me why. Sure. Well, first off, it's 17 attorneys general uh, representing over 131 million Americans. And I was proud as uh, Pennsylvania's attorney general to take the lead on organizing my colleagues. Uh, we believe that the action uh, through the president's executive order was really un-American. Uh, and I think there are serious legal questions that it raises. My senior team and I, along with other attorneys general from across the country, are looking at um, what potential claims we may have and what legal steps we may take. Uh, in the coming days. But make no mistake, I, I think this undermines both the security of the United States and it also undermines, uh, really, it threatens the, the very foundation of who we are, a nation of immigrants, a nation of laws, and a nation that has really you know, predicated everything we've done on our Constitution. Why do you say that you think that it jeopardizes or endangers our security? Well, I think anything that is done that ultimately makes us less safe in the world, creates more enemies, puts us in a position where we are putting aside the rule of law, um, makes us less safe. And so I think in this situation you have, for example, the Sali family who was turned away in the Philadelphia airport, and there are examples of this across the country, um, who had all of their paperwork in order. They followed the rules. They did what they were supposed to do. And because of this, what I believe to be an illegal executive order, they were turned away. And ultimately, they deprived Pennsylvania of the benefit that they were going to, to bring to our Commonwealth. Furthermore, it creates a situation where we're pitting not just Americans against one another, but we're pitting, um, in some cases, certain countries against the United States. And I, I would strongly urge the president to rethink this order. General, we only have about 30 seconds left. Uh, what legal basis will you use and what will the attorneys general do? We are in the process, I mean, literally working around the clock of assessing that now. Obviously, if I take legal action, I want to be very, very careful and circumspect in how I do that. Uh, and I think uh, I would just say to you, stay tuned in the coming days here. Uh, we'll have more to say on that. Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro. General Shapiro, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you.
Stay tuned to WITF throughout the day. Uh, This obviously is uh, the big story, but I will say this. As uh, someone who has uh, followed the news closely for the last 30 years working in uh, this business, uh, in this occupation, uh, I don't know if I've ever seen something move as quickly where there's a different huge story impacting so many people as coming out of Washington with the Trump administration. So be sure to stay tuned to WITF throughout the day.